So it's our last night together and I'd like to endeavour to offer some reflections on true refuge in a modern world. It's like a potentially ambitious undertaking, um, but I'll try my best and maybe we can participate, um, maybe not initially verbally, but with as much of your own recognition of this need, um, perhaps for you as an individual, perhaps recognising um, part of our uh, modern, and I'm not going to fully define properly, philosophically, all those parameters, but it seems to be uh, an era, at least modern Western for many, an era that is hungry for meaning, hungry for refuge, that is meaningful. Many not feeling that we can go back to the religious sensibilities that might feel more medieval or belong to systems that privilege a priestly caste or have a kind of a, we could say like a, a relationship with what is more than us. In some kind of young way, as if that either the great God in the sky or a kind of Santa Claus kind of power. And yet, something in us probably recognizes that need for a place to lay our heart, a place to lay our mind, nestling ourselves in a context that is meaningful. that is stabilizing and that leads onward. So, this is my wish tonight. So I want to first look at the word world, um, as I understand the Buddha spoke about the word world. When you hear the word world or modern world, what is the image that's conjured up by the word world? And typically, for many of us, it could be we have the expression the world out there, right? That there's, you know, maybe we include the planet and the environment and people or countries or cultures, but they sort of broadly say that's the world. And then we think maybe there's me and maybe I can see that I'm part of the world, but um, we often think of it as that there's everything that's kind of around us and out of us, outside of us. When the Buddha used the word world, or gets translated as world, um, he included the, all of that, but he also included the inner domains of the mind, our mind, your mind, and its beliefs, as well as the immaterial environment of culture, of social convention and it includes our beliefs, it includes our perception and our ways of seeing the world that he recognized that we invariably are participating in the creation moment to moment 
of what we see and what transpires. We see that in our inner domain, and if we look carefully, we can see our participation in this world. So this is from one of my teachers as he's discussing this, and he says, this is the world um, that the Dhamma Vinaya addresses. So we've talked a lot about Dhamma, and the Vinaya is the code of conduct that the Buddha developed together with his monks and nuns to guide their behavior and their actions that would be in accord with Dhamma. And then he goes on to say, we as human beings are an aspect of this world uh, that can reflect upon itself. We don't know if other things can reflect upon themselves in the way that humans can. Maybe they can. It's not really for me to say, but we really know that we can reflect upon ourselves. And we can develop a holistic wisdom. We can develop wisdom that can embrace and transcend. So can hold with love and get bigger than any point or detail within that world. We can touch any detail, embrace it with love and get wider than. He says, this kind of um, development cares for everything, but is not attached or confined to any position within that world. It's not confined or limited to self, to other. It doesn't cling and define itself by a particular mood or mind state, right? We've been studying that. It is not attached to a particular tree or society, and it is not even attached to meditative bliss or infinite consciousness. He says the culmination of this development is awakening. The culmination of this development is awakening to be able to touch, embrace any detail, and know the bigger picture. Wider, transcending, again, doesn't just mean going up. Transcending means getting wider than, climbing beyond the tendency to shrink to the particular. So we are for better and for worse, participants in here, not in here, we're participants here. Through our way of engaging, we can't avoid that. (laughs) And we've been studying this week the craving, the craving for becoming and the craving for non-becoming. My craving to assert myself in this world in a particular way. I've got to be like this and you have to see me like this. And and the craving to slink back and deny our responsibility, our ability to respond 
the way that we are invariably, moment to moment, impacting our environment through the ways we understand, through the ways we see, through the ways we engage, through the ways we're quiet, through the ways we speak up, through the ways we bow, through the ways we try our best and fall down. But if we're interested in Dharma and refuge, he's also inviting us to this middle way. Or many, many ways you can describe the middle way. But what is that middle way between the craving for becoming and asserting myself and the craving to just get out of this complicated mess called, whatever you call this, being alive. Can we stand in that middle way and practice there? Of course we'll fall into extremes. The Buddha himself was, a, before his awakening, a master and understood the way he would fall into extremes. Of course. It's not wrong. We don't beat ourselves up for us. That's the path. We see the suffering, suffering in that. But if you're here, you'll probably feel called on to know a refuge that is not just spinning in the dualities, the binaries of asserting myself or denying that I matter. And this isn't about being down on self-assertion. Some of us who have spent too long denying ourselves, we need to learn how to come forward. And yes, I'm here, absolutely. Some of us who I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, can step back a little bit. We're we're playing the we're playing the edges. We're learning what is actually meaningful development for this soul right now. So I want to tell you a story of someone who has inspired me. His story. Um, uh, and tell you what he concluded and what his teaching has become a modern person. And his name is John Francis, and he's from the United States. And in in the 1970s, he was in actually near where Anushka lives in the Bay Area. Um, uh, he was a young man. He's a young African American man. He was with his partner. He said, I think they were in a car. And he witnessed an oil spill in the Bay Area. One of the tankers had spilled oil. And it was one of these devastating scenes of the wildlife of the ocean there being caught in those terrible slicks when you see the beautiful creatures covered in oil. And it moved him so deeply and shocked him and hurt his um, human heart so much that he immediately, apparently, and I don't know what his partner thought about this, but he immediately decided, enough, I, I want to find a different way of participating here. And he decided to stop, at that point, stop using motorized transport, right? Because he joined the dots. Okay, oil, car, okay, let's see if, how, how I can respond in a different way, try something different. So the story is his story, and you can see him on YouTube and um, 
hear his teachings. And now he's a much older man um, who, I won't tell you what he does, you can check him out yourself. He's a very inspiring soul. Um, and he, I think for 22 years, um, walked around North America on foot, travelling from place to place uh, without using motorised transport. And then he said, after a little while, he realised that he talked too much as well. So he said, okay, I want to do something different. I realise I talk too much and want people to get me, but I rarely listen. So he said, I'm going to take a vow of silence. And this man travelled across North America, uh, going from place to place, uh, silently, um, without motorised transport, walking across the country again and again and again, inspiring people. Apparently he also went, uh, did two university degrees in silence. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how he managed that, but this is verified. (laughs) Um, And after 22 years of this, he said that he he realised it it was even becoming an identity, so it was time to let go of that as well. It was like, okay, yeah, I can... People inviting him to travel, and he's, okay, yeah, I'll do that now. I'll I'll, I'll fly, or I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do here. And he began his uh, speaking career again, and now you see him wandering around with his, I think he's still alive, with his banjo um, teaching. But the po- one of the points I wanted to highlight was his understanding that came from these years of um, creative engagement. And he puts, one of the ways he puts it now, because initially his interest was around the environment, as you can see, the physical environment, the earth environment. And so all of this talk of the environment, the environment, the environment. And he, he comes to this beautiful understanding, he says, and much like, I would say, the Buddha, I'm not claiming that he is Buddha, but much like the Buddha, his teaching has become this. We are the environment. There's not an environment out there. There, there is. But what happens, those things we engage in, think are so terrible or we forget about, or we... We are the environment. Not we are... Now you should feel guilty and horrible about all the horrible things that are happening in the world. But look creatively at our participation. The way, moment to moment, we have a possibility with mindfulness, with investigation, with faith, with concentration, with wisdom, to look deeply in to see what is a way of participating. Not so I can be a good person, Yes, we want the goodness, and as Anushka spoke about skill, there is skill. And skill isn't about trying to become someone. Skill is about what is beautiful, what is meaningful, what leads onward to less harm, to greater love. Let me find out. And then our participation is not only serving out there, it is also meaningful for us as individual souls, as individual beings, because we create the world together. This chitta, this heart-mind is cultivated 
in a moment of perception. And we're either cultivating more isolation, more separate selfing, more less skill, or we can find out the beauty of skill. So, a little bit about um, what I want to say. Many, 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 many games in the modern era. So much privilege and gain for those who have privilege and gain. So much. So many advances. We live many now. I'm not speaking for the whole world. I'm speaking for those who are fortunate to inherit this legacy of greater health understanding, health care. Most of us in this room will probably live a lot longer than our great-great-grandparents. What are the gains? These kind of gains of, for all the ills in the modern era, this thrust and this gain and this valuing towards more um, humanitarian uh, responses towards more understanding of uh, human rights. Slowly, too slow for some, but nonetheless in a different place than we were. And it's not that there isn't a lot of work to be done, there is. But I just want to acknowledge the many, many gains, scientifically, um, medically, um, you could probably tell me many, many gains of this era. And it seems also an era that is hungry, hungry for something. Something's not yet satisfied for all those gains that hasn't necessarily brought more awakening hasn't necessarily brought more inner freedom. I was listening to something not long ago where apparently somebody asked Immanuel Kant, I don't know a great deal about Immanuel Kant, he was a philosopher, in, in the middle of the, what is called the modern era was kind of coming into, into being, and someone asked him if he could define, what's the modern era? What is modern? As it was sort of kind of moving uh, into that, that, that kind of era. And he said, oh, the modern era, or when we're in a modern sort of mind state set, he said, it's when, if somebody came into the room that you were in and opened the door and caught you, saw you on your knees praying, you would be embarrassed. It's very interesting, I thought. It's like, yeah, that's right. I, re- I remember, <laughs> remember that first encounter with Dhamma. And, and I was uh, uh, in India, and there was a tent, and there was a Tibetan teacher inside. And um, people were going in and listening to teachings and bowing and etc., etc. And I sat outside, and could hear the teachings through the loudspeakers. And... Um, 
I was thinking, I'm not going in there. I'm not, I'm not going to go and bow. That's medieval. Or whatever. I don't think I had that language then, but I, you know, I had enough of that. And I was, right. Even though something in me, on some level, wanted to be able to lay my head and lay my heart in something bigger than my sort of atomized sense of self that had learned as a modern person that I had to either figure it out or I had to be good or I had to serve or I had to whatever it was I wanted I had to strive and get that thing even if it was a spiritual goal couldn't let myself feel that part that wanted to lay my head down because haven't we gone beyond that now? And I'm not suggesting now everyone has to lay their head down. I'm using it as a metaphor. I'm using it as the metaphor for that desire to um, recognize that the human perennial search for meaning and meaningfulness, typically called the religious sensibility, that which concerns itself with meaning and meaningfulness is perennial in humans. How do we how do we allow ourselves to have that recognition of my um, need, actually, the need as a human being to engage with the more than me? Yes, socially, politically, absolutely and the more than me that is not yet known and seen and seeable that calls me the, the great mystery, I could say, now. How can I, I be allowed to know and bow to the gains of the rational and the empirical and all the gifts that has offered us? How can I bow to that without having to make that the only domain that is culturally sanctioned as a modern, that even my spirituality might still try and be squeezed into a rational, empirical, measurable, agreeable to everybody, something that we agree upon, can value and name what is true and what is not true. How can I honour those games and not try to go back but actually let myself listen to that perennial human sensibility that's concerned with questions of meaning and meaningfulness that do not feel fully satisfied with the models and the frameworks that I'm given growing up in the 70s, in the sort of post-religious age, at least in this country, for many. I want to read a sutta from the Buddha. Another angle on the middle way here. Because I... Well, maybe you'll get why I'm pointing to this one and what I'm talking about. So for those... Some of you know it probably very well. It's from the Sutta Nipata.
wondering whether to read some of the prelim or get straight to the punchline. You can look at it more if you're interested. So this is the punchline. In, in inverted commas. Everything exists. This is one extreme view. Nothing exists. This is the other extreme view. Avoiding both extremes, the Tathagata teaches a drop the doctrine of the middle way. Everything exists or nothing exists. That urge that we have to assert and to know, is this real or not real? You know, that what I have to do, and who's going to tell you? Who's going to tell you if a gesture of bowing is real or not real? Who can tell you if your perception of how you experience the cosmos is real or not real? Who can tell you if your way of knowing and all the ways you know are real or not real? Now, this is not asserting that you can now, that all of us need to make up our own religion. I think that era has also happened <laughs> in certain places. Sometimes I think the... Um, this can be a real question for you, and I know some of you in this room, that in our honouring of the legacy of the rational, the empirical, the measurable, the culturally agreed upon knowledge and ways of knowing, in our honouring of that, sometimes some of us find it hard to recognise perhaps what I'm going to call a religious sensibility. I don't mean we have to belong to a religion that depth of heart and soul that is concerned with questions of meaningfulness, that our soul is fully allowed to come online. And we might know ways or start to open up ways, but we say, no, 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 not that. It's not real. It's not real. This is real, because somebody told me it was real. So some of you I know this is relevant for in this room and I offer this for you. What would it be to, yes, honour all of those gains of this era and still find that place in us that seeks refuge that is not just a refuge of a narrative that we're given as the peak of where humans have got to, that we find something more perennial, timeless, and that invites investigation. So in this retreat we have been offering this timeless framework of Dhamma that this brilliant framework from the Buddha that does cross boundaries of time this and this very sort of core pithy part of the three characteristics and the five skandhas as a framework not as an ultimate truth not as an absolute explanation for the entire mystery of the universe or the cosmos, but as a framework that if I take this on and sincerely practice looking in this way, it will lead to less clinging and freedom 
that something can free up in the heart and mind in such a way that we recognize our participation and we become more able to participate in ways that are meaningful for the one and meaningful for the other. Meaningful for the individual, meaningful for the whole. There have been many losses in this modern era also. Um, something, as I mentioned, with as Kant was pointing to, also, on that first day, we talked about lineage. And again, it's not true for every single individual, but something of this conception, this idea of self, modern idea of self, which is not identical to... Well, I don't even have to try and assert a, a historical understanding here, but if I look at myself in my development, my sense of my locatedness here is not the same sense of self that I was given in my family of origin, where I, I belonged in a sense, I could say, to quite a traditional, traditional meaning, uh, by traditional I mean that my family or people had been um, still quite tribally oriented, <laughs> large family clannish, tribally oriented kind of identity. And that's really, really a gift, right? Those kinds of things. It's not the whole truth. We know where those kind of uh, tribal identities can go if we believe that that's who I have my allegiance with only. Right? It leads to other kinds of wars. It leads to um, comparison. It leads to you know where that, that can lead. But there's something that we can have also lost when we've come out of tribe, in a sense. And many moderns are also seeking their tribe, in a way. You know, somewhere where we can belong, somewhere where we can fully embed some group of people. Some, and we can, and there are beautiful groups of beings we can belong to that, that speak to us of our own... Um, values and all of that and lineage lineage, the lines we have come from both perhaps genetically ethnically, culturally tribally, familiarly and the lines that we have come from you know, many of you or a number of you here in lineages let's say a 12 step lineage or um, lineages that have really that we can really lean into. Lineages of the trees, of the earth, of the sky. We don't often, until we really recognize our need, recognize we're beings who need to know where we are. And in a sense, um, what we can lean upon as lineages. And here, Anushka and I feel, I would say if I can speak for Anushka, but I think so, really blessed to know this lineage of Dhamma that we have 
trained in, benefited from, love, serve, are blessed by ongoingly, that we can place ourselves, and you can too, in lineage, without assuming that that is the final definition of all the ways of looking at the world and everything that I need to do in my participation. One of the losses of, for many of us moderns is loss of ways of knowing. So um, I was struck and privileged last year that uh, in April last year, eight indigenous women came to Devon to perform ceremony for four days for... Uh, women, European women, um, and to support those that wish to come to uh, remember certain ways of knowing uh, of the land, of the medicine people, not only from their cultures, but from our indigene on this land. The medicine people have a strong lineage in all cultures, actually, but in the European culture, one of these women, and she'd be very happy for me to share her, what she told us, she was from North America, a First Nation person, and she had a calling, a vision, she said a calling to come to Europe, which essentially were, of course, where the countries that had eventually dominated and colonised all those uh, lands in the ways that many of our ancestors did. Not everyone here, but from this land have. And she felt a calling and came to her this history and legacy in the um, 16th century, 17th century. And she had visions and then started to study it of the witch burnings in Europe, which wasn't only women, it was also men, but largely women and uh, at the, if you look at it it's the same time as the ascendancy of the uh, beginning of the scientific revolution and the rational empirical starts to rise and her calling was to come and help people to heal their own ways of knowing that may have gotten cut off their own ways of knowing through the body through the earth through the medicine, not trying to pick up her ways, but there's a perennial and universal also. So they came and blessed us. And we had ceremony for four days. I went to two and a half days of it. And some of the local men came to support the space. And um, there, were, there was a woman... I think two from North America, one from Chile, one from somewhere I've forgotten, somewhere in Central America. Uh, an Aboriginal woman from Australia, a woman from Sri Lanka, a woman from Malaysia, sorry, not from Sri Lanka, a woman from Malaysia, a woman from Namibia, and um, they performed ceremony 
and were blessing us in a sense, blessing us to know what we may have forgotten, not making that a better way of knowing than the scientific or the rational, not making that a new religion, but kind of healing, healing the ways of knowing that God amputated, that God um, severed, that God, in a, in a sense, um, destroyed to some degree, not entirely. <coughs> but there are many more. So I saw not one of these uh, fabulous people that came and blessed us with, with healing. Many more ways of knowing, of emotional, and also not just emotional, but the heart, not just as emotional heart, but the heart as its own organ of knowing, its own way of knowing. Imagine in our Dhamma practice, if our chitta, our heart-mind, some of us will think, and it will be a while for us, that mind will all only be this beautiful bright head center. But chitta is not only this. Chitta is is actually a multitude of ways of knowing coming together in this, what we're saying, like this that knows. That arising of the knowing with what arises. Even sense contact, when we think of hearing, of hearing. And any of you who've practiced for a while, do, is your sense contact of hearing, are you conceiving of it in exactly the same way now as you did when you began? Yes, we're pointed to know contact. We're pointed to know hearing as hearing to not make itself, to not cling, to not, um, to act to recognize the impermanence. But if I look at my own practice, my idea of sense contact in the beginning was very informed by a, some kind of atomized modern idea of the senses, where I thought hearing just meant my ear. And it was a very sort of clinical way I was just listening, like hearing. This is hearing. There's a sound. I'm not going to get attached. It was very clinical. It didn't have a lot of heart in it. It didn't have a lot of body in it. I didn't realize my sense organs were incorporated into a whole heart and body and soul and sensibility. So now how hearing arises as contact without having to make something more of that. That way of perceiving that way the way of knowing the instrument of knowing the instrument of perception that is located here is a little bit bigger than it was some of our work is healing healing and not taking for granted ideas that we may be incorporating about self, about senses that are modern. So I'll give another example. 
Um, I like to think very much one of our legacies is that this era, sometimes called the era that privileges the sense of seeing. Right? Seeing has reached an ascendancy, we could say. Think about your practice when we use the word, and we do in practice a lot, in Dharma practice, we say seeing into experiencing, looking deeply. Can you see how it's the same verb as the eyes? Insight meditation. Right? What other words have to do with this ocular um, ocular center that we use in practice? Can you think of any? I can't remember my list. I've got about seven or eight words, but seeing View, right, view, even the word view. It's like, when I think of that word view, what do you think of? When you think of view, it's like you're kind of, you're getting a bit of a, getting a bit of a vantage point on something and you're kind of looking at it, right? Yes. Yes. But if we think seeing into is going to be kind of an eyes down and we kind of bore into consciousness through our inner eyes, we will miss a lot. Ocular, this ocular center, seeing our experience, seeing, observing, we also say, don't we, in practice? Vision. Vision. Sightseeing. 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 Is that what you do in practice? Yeah. There's a lot around sight and seeing. What was that other word you said just now? Vision. Vision. Right, inner vision. Focusing. Focusing. Do you think of that eyes when you think of focusing? Focusing like... Right. Very good. So that's, that's, yeah, exactly. That's part of that legacy from the scientific revolution. All the gifts we got by being able to observe things through the eyes, through the, through the equipment, getting a little bit of distance on something, right? Yes, we want to get distance on something. It's really useful when we're in fear to actually be able to step out and say, ah, this is fear, right? But if we stay at a distance, if we only ever always want to distance ourselves in order to get free, we'll lose intimacy, any of you know that from practice? You get, you get more space from something, you get a little distance, but something in the heart, it feels a little less encumbered, but something gets a little dry. The juice can go out of it. Do any of you know that? Have been practicing a while? So that ocular metaphor, which we inherit without knowing it as moderns, Right, we get into the equipment, we look, we get to see, but seeing and getting distance on things on its own, without sensing, without touch, and I mean inner touch as well, without being intimate with experience, on its own, getting a distance does not heal, does not transform the emotion. Getting distance on something at worst can be voyeuristic, can be out of relationship, 
can keep us very lonely also. So I offer that as one. I found that a very useful reflection that if there's any way in your practice you're kind of coming up and just getting back. Yes, we want to do that at times when we're really in the thick of it. Come up, get up, get it, get it, get a, get a vantage point. But if we leave it there, we will feel bereft. Our soul will not find meaning, actually. We'll get a little bit more freedom to start with, but not a freedom where we can participate deeply. So, how can we usefully consider this beautiful refuge in Dhamma that we have been reflecting on and practicing these days and recognize that we will, we don't come as um, uh, sort of a clean observer, so to speak. We don't come neutral. We don't come to a laboratory where the table's all clean and, you know, all our tools are polished up, ready to go. We all come with all kinds of biases into the lab. All kinds of gifts, all kinds of biases, all kinds of biases of ways of knowing. Can we recognize that? That picking up this beautiful framework of Dhamma, we have a humbling um, journey to heal ourselves also as instruments of perception, as an instrument of knowing, bodily, imaginally, mentally, emotionally, heart as organ of perception. So many ways of knowing that can come together that may have been lost. And I think we re- we'll realize that along the way when we bump in to our practice and we realize, oh, I've reached a bit of a plateau here. Nothing's moving much. Maybe I need to, yeah, how am I doing in the heart right now? How's my sense of body? Remember this morning when I spoke about sati, the ways the sati is lost. One is we can lose the sense of body. We can lose the sense of space. We can lose the sense of the lateral environment. We can lose the sense of each other. Especially if we have an idea that anything that's worth achieving I have to do on my own and work really hard and it's all down to number one as the modern phrase would go as if we're here alone so I'd like to end shortly but I'd like us to consider some of what might be the, the beautiful inheritances that we have whoever we are sitting on this seat that that we reflected on on the first day, our lineages, the lineages that you know are yours 
familiarly, tribally, from the land your peoples have come from, the languages that are closest to your heart, the ways your people blessed each other as humans are wont to do throughout the ages, the ways your peoples, your loved ones have contemplated the great mystery, related with the great mystery. Not to try and become them, but to lean in and receive the blessing of the legacy that is your soul. That that can come fully to the table as you come and practice Dhamma. That we don't amputate anything of our fleshiness, our poetry, our knowing as we come into the timeless framework of Dhamma. So I want to offer you a consideration from is from like some of my tribal roots. Um, and it's to do with the language of blessing. And blessing is um, I love the word blessing now I've it's a little healed. You know, it used to belong only to the priestly caste. They were the ones in the older era who were allowed to bless the ones who were allowed to mediate that <coughs> divinity. But this comes from uh, uh, John O'Donoghue, who's an Irish um, poet, philosopher, mystic practitioner. And he's asking us to reflect on blessing. So I offer this for us. That in perhaps as part of this modern era where we're no longer satisfied with just the privileged caste telling us what is meaningful to us. That we find what is meaningful for us. Neither the priestly caste of religions or even the priestly caste of science who are the ones who are allowed to tell us about the mystery. So this is from him. This is how he puts it. He says, There's a quiet light that shines in every heart, always secretly there. It illuminates the mind to see beauty, our desire to see possibility, our hearts to love life. Without this quiet light in our heart, our days would be wearisome. Then he says, this can be a shy inner light. And it enables us to recognize, to receive our very presence here as a blessing. He says, we enter as strangers and become heirs to a harvest of memory and spirit, to a harvest of dream that has long preceded us and will now enfold and nourish and sustain us. He says, it is infinitely lonely to live in a world without blessing. Then he describes the word, he says, this word blessing evokes warmth and protection. It suggests that no life is alone or unreachable. 
He says, each life is clothed in a garment of spirit that secretly links it to everything else. He said, though suffering and chaos befall us, it cannot quench this inner life of this flame, of this quiet inner light. He says, sometimes within we can feel too haunted and lost. Sometimes progress has cut us off. Sometimes we have fallen out of belonging. For some of us, we have no rituals anymore to protect and guide us as we cross into the unknown. What is nearest to the heart can sometimes feel furthest from the world. He says, Blessing is a privileged intimacy. It touches the tender membrane where the human heart cries out to its divine ground. He says, in ecstasy and loneliness of one's life, a blessing can sometimes be nearer to us than any other person or thing. He says, it is not a sentiment or a question. It is a gracious invocation where the human heart pleads with the divine heart. There is nothing more intimate in a life that that's hold on, there's nothing more intimate in a life is that secret territory where this spark anchors. Whatever our conceptual differences, and then he says our times are desperate for meaning and belonging. In the parched deserts of postmodernity, a blessing can be like the discovery of a fresh well. Could we discover our power to bless each other? Each of us can bless now. When blessing is invoked, it changes the atmosphere. Some of the plenitude flows, that flows into our hearts from the invisible neighborhood of loving kindness. And a person can be illuminated in a completely new way. In a dead wall, a new window opens. Into a broken heart, healing begins to fall like morning dew. Sometimes we live like paupers, but actually our inheritance of spirit is so vast. This quiet, timeless light arises in our souls, silent and subtle. But in blessing, it emerges to embrace and nurture us. Let us begin to learn how to bless each other. Whenever you give a blessing, a blessing returns to enfold you. And then he says, I invite you to awaken your own power to bless. I suggest to you the secret world of healing and plenitude and flame and divinity that encircles you, shelters and guides your very every breath and step. So let's sit for a moment and consider your own power to bless yourself and each other.
May we learn together how to bring blessing through our way of seeing, through our ways of knowing, through our ways of touching, through our invariable participation, including our error that seems like error, coming from our sincere wish as that timeless dimension brought through sincerity, through the heart, into the way we bless, moment by moment.